Our God and Father, O Lord, You are our God. We praise You. Indeed, You are the God of heaven, the Maker of all things, the Creator of the ends of the earth. And God, we do praise You this day, and we give You glory and honor which is due to You. All praises and glory and honor are due to You, O God. And Lord, You are our Father. You love us. You care for us. You meet our needs. Indeed, You have seen fit, God, to save us from our sins, to cleanse us and wash us, to make us worthy to stand in Your presence. And Lord, You have done this by Your strong arm. Lord, You have done this by Your power and by Your will. And we thank You. We thank You for the precious blood of Jesus which was shed for us and for His broken body. We thank You that He was willing to come and to give His life as a ransom for us that He might bear our sins in His body on the tree. O Lord, that the chastisement that was due to us fell upon Him. We thank You. We praise You. We glorify You for Your blessed Holy Spirit who has come and applied this great salvation to us, who has given us new birth and made us new creatures in Christ Jesus. O Lord, that You have, by Your Holy Spirit, given us life, eternal life. And we thank You that now that He is conforming us into the image of Christ and making us more like Jesus. Oh, Lord, we want to be like Jesus. And so we thank you for these privileges. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would strengthen our faith, that you would comfort us in our suffering. Oh, Lord, that you would uh, help us in our unbelief, in our doubting, in our fears. God, we thank you for your great and your precious promises. And we ask that you would help us to see more clearly all that you have promised us in Christ. We thank you for the privilege that we have to gather today and to look into your word. Help us to see clearly what you have said through your word to the church. We honor and we bless you because of Jesus' precious blood. Amen. Okay, so in talking about the gospel, we have recently been talking about the doctrine of justification by faith. And in doing that, can everybody hear me back there? And in doing that, we um, have first started talking about the Protestant Reformation. Reason being is that the issues that were brought to light in the Protestant Reformation really clarify the central themes of Christianity, specifically regarding the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've, we've talked a little bit about church history, what, uh, when the Reformation happened, what exactly happened as a result of it, and the uh, dividing of different church denominations and so on. And then we have now started to focus on what exactly the church had become during the time of the Reformation, focusing specifically on some of the uh, rites and traditions of the Roman church and holding them up, if you will, to the light of Scripture. And so last week we actually talked, we did a, a brief survey of, of Roman rites and traditions. 
starting with the papacy, talking about the Pope just briefly, and talking about some of the uh, real problems with the system of church government that was implemented. Also then, uh, and namely, the special priesthood and the monastic societies that were a part of the Roman church government and still are today. And then, of course, we talked a bit about the Eucharist and transubstantiation, the idea that Christ is sacrificed again and again and that the actual body and the blood become the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus as Jesus is re-sacrificed again and again for sins at the Mass. And then, lastly, we talked about purgatory, which is the idea that there is a place where we go and suffer for sins and there we are purified and if you will in the words of the catechism we uh, undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven and uh, of course we talked a, uh, a bit about purgatory as well of course all of these have been a very brief overview and have simply talked about uh, what these matters are, that they existed in the church at the time of the Reformation, and this gives us a sense and a feel for what the Reformers were actually protesting. Well, the last in that series of uh, our survey of Roman rites and traditions that I want to talk about specifically is the doctrine of indulgences. And if you will, this one was really kind of the the straw that broke the camel's back, if you will, uh, specifically in the ministry of Martin Luther. He was incensed by the idea of indulgences, and it is really that that, uh, that really caused him to finally speak up. And uh, then, if you will, at the top of um, excuse me, page 97... Uh, we'll take off there and we're going to begin to talk a little bit about the idea of indulgences. Now, I want you to re remember a couple of things that are important to our whole conversation here. We're talking about the doctrine of justification by faith because in that teaching, what you have is the central theme of the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of, of Christ, who Christ is and what he accomplished. And And so, if you will, it summarizes for us the main theme of the gospel, or, if you will, what it is that the Christian church preaches and teaches about God, Christ, salvation. It's the central theme of the kingdom of God. And so, if you will, this uh, doctrine of justification is what we're focusing on. And the things I wanted us to really see were, is that the purpose for understanding these things is to see how this came about in church history and how clearly it defines for us what the essentials of the, of the gospel really are. And specifically, uh, focus on what we're calling the sufficiency of the atonement. And when we ask that question, we're asking the question, is the atonement that Christ provided sufficient to save us in and of what he has done? Or is there something more than the atonement that is required to justify us in the sight of God? Okay? And so as we've been going through these doctrines, we've been asking the question and, and, and showing, if you will, how these doctrines that were in the church at that time were actually denying or undermining 
the sufficiency of the atonement to save. So they've never denied, the Roman church has never denied uh, the, the atonement, okay? But what they have done by various teachings is they have undermined its sufficiency so that we need the atonement plus other things. For instance, we need the atonement plus we need a priest to, uh, to uh, uh, profess absolution of our sins in the confessional. Or uh, we need the atonement plus we need the merit of the saints granted to us through indulgences. Or we need the atonement plus we need to go suffer in purgatory for some length of time to undergo purification before we can enter heaven. So if you will, all of these things are undermining the sufficiency and the simplicity of the atonement that Christ is offering us through the gospel. Okay? And so that's why these things are important. Not only that, it's important for us to learn how to discern in religious systems how subtle these things really are. Because they don't appear on the surface to be what they really are. They don't come right out and say, Hey, this new teaching I have is a denial of the sufficiency of the atonement. That's the last thing they do, right? In other words, they they doctor it up so that it's really an obscure matter on the surface. But when you dig a little deeper, what you find out is it is, in fact, uh, an undermining of the sufficiency of the atonement, okay? And so I'm reminded when I tell you about these things, about what we're really talking about here, of the scripture where the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, I was determined to know nothing among you but Christ Jesus and Him crucified. The person and the work of Jesus. Okay? So, with that in mind, let's talk just a bit about indulgences and then we're going to move on from there and talk about how the arguments of the Reformers kind of came uh, to fruition and, and what happened there. Indulgences. The Roman Catechism states... An indulgence is the remission before God of temporal punishment for sins whose guilt is already forgiven, which a properly disposed member of the Christian faithful gains under certain and defined conditions by the assistance of the church, which, as minister of redemption, dispenses and applies authoritatively the treasury of the satisfactions of Christ and the saints. Canon 993 An indulgence is a partial or plenary insofar as it partially or totally frees from the temporal punishment due to sins. Again, we see the sufficiency of the atonement severely undermined as we still have temporal punishment due to sins to be paid. The obvious question here, did did Christ's sacrifice put away sins once for all believers or not? This is an obvious denial of essential Christian doctrine. Here's what I'm saying. This is an obvious, in other words, it's plain to see, denial of essential Christian doctrine. I'm not talking about a secondary issue or or a tertiary issue. I'm talking about an essential primary doctrine of the Christian faith. This doctrine of indulgences is an obvious denial of the sufficiency of the atonement. Because it's saying that there are these other things that we can employ to add to or complete or purify our salvation. That it was not complete in simply trusting Christ. Okay? 
And so um, Hebrews 9.26 would say this, Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So we ask the question when we look at Scripture, what did Jesus do by the sacrifice of himself? Well, (laughs) he put away sin once and for all. And that is the simplicity of the gospel. That's why Paul said, I was determined to know nothing among you but Christ Jesus and Him crucified. It's the simplicity of what Christ has accomplished that we preach in the gospel. Salvation from sin is in the Savior. And the Savior has completed His saving act. We have nothing left to do but be saved. Amen? And so that is the point of the gospel. And so I I want you to help me look at some of these words in this, um, if you will, pronouncement from the church. They say, an indulgence is the remission before God of temporal punishment for sins whose guilt is already forgiven. So look here. It's a temporal punishment for sins. Okay? This isn't funny. This is very important. It's a temporal punishment for sins already forgiven. Now I want you to think about the inconsistency of that statement alone. <laughs> exactly. I mean, what does forgiven imply? Are your sins forgiven or not? If they're forgiven, then why should you be punished for them? Are you with me? I mean, this is the kind of thing that's right there. It's obvious. All you got to do is look at the documents that teach us what these things are. Okay? It's very, very obvious. These sins of which temporal punishment is due are not forgiven. <laughs> are you with me? So now, now we're talking about the forgiveness of sins. Are sins forgiven or aren't they? What, 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 what does the atonement do for us? And, 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 and if sins are forgiven, on what basis are they forgiven? Are they forgiven on the basis of, of the fact that some other saint was better than I was and, and that saint's overflow of merit can be transferred to me? Or are sins forgiven on the basis of the fact that Jesus was punished for sins once and for all? Are you with me? And so the, these things are extremely important to grasp how obvious and simple and essential that they are. Okay, And uh, I, I want you to see something else a little later in the... In the, uh, in the wording there, it says, Canon 993, an indulgence is partial or plenary. That means it, it's going to cover part of your sins or all of your sins. A plenary indulgence cancels out all of your sins, if you will. Uh, insofar as it partially or totally frees from the temporal punishment due to sins. Now think about that statement. Temporal punishment due to sins. So now we're saying that God punishes Christians for sins. Think about that. I want after they're forgiven, right? So I want to ask you a question. Does God punish Christians for sins? And and isn't that an essential question about Christian faith? Okay? So let me answer that for you. No. God does not punish Christians for sin. Okay? 
we undergo discipline by God. Okay? To correct us and keep us on the right path. But listen, God's providence in disciplining us is always meant for our restoration and our benefit, and God designs it for our good. It is never punitive. God does not punish Christians for sins. Okay? It's something to, that we, we, we have to understand. Okay? We have not been saved for wrath. We've been saved, which means we've been saved from wrath. We've been saved from punishment. Okay? Now God only has good designs for us, no matter what they are, no matter what you face in life. It is the goodness of God sanctifying you and carrying you through till the end where we are glorified and live forever more in eternal bliss in the presence of God. Amen? But God is never punishing us for our sins. Okay? And so think about when we're preaching a God in the church who is this angry God in heaven who punishes His people. Is that the God of Scripture? And think about how essential that is to the message of the cross. Think about how essential that is to the message of Christianity. Think about how essential that is to the spirit that we possess in the church. You know, if God is this great punishing God, then shouldn't the leaders of the church be a great punishing force? And shouldn't the people of the church be a great punishing force? Why, let's all crusade. Right? Let's go find the infidels. Let's get the sticks. Right? Are you with me? You understand what I'm saying? Instead, what kind of a God do we worship and serve? He's a God of infinite and profound grace and mercy and love who loves us enough to discipline us and correct us and keep us on the right path and all the while pour out the richest blessings upon us. Amen? Are you with me? And, yes? Well, well, they are, yes. As a matter of fact, the deeper you, you dig into these things, there is more and more weight of teaching that's been applied to try to answer it all. Okay, And that's why it's so long. For instance, if you tried to read the, the, uh, the uh, Council of Trent, okay, it's no small document, let me tell you. And the canons there are many, many, many. Why? Because the, the reformers had raised a thousand questions. They, re- they read words like this and, and they had a thousand questions to answer. And so, if you will, at the Council of Trent, they went through and they answered every one of them. And they made canons and they pronounced a, an official answer from the infallible church concerning all those questions. Okay? And that's what you have in the Council of Trent. It, it, it was, in and of itself, the Catholic response to the Reformation. Okay? It's very profound reading. You should read it should spend your time reading that stuff. It's very educational, and it's very enlightening. It helps us to see what the real issues are, okay? So, furthermore, uh, do we have redemption through the blood of Christ? Okay, now think about this. These temporal punishment that's due for sins already forgiven, okay? I'm asking the question, do we have redemption through the blood of Christ? Are our sins really covered? Or is there a further price to be paid? Shall we now buy the forgiveness of sins with money 
or with suffering. This is exactly what the doctrine of indulgences teaches. More than this, the way in which this teaching was used to garner money from the poor peasants during the time of the Reformation was reprehensible. Consider a brief excerpt from a popular online encyclopedia. (coughs) The false doctrine and scandalous conduct of the pardoners were an immediate occasion of the Protestant Reformation. In 1517, Pope Leo X offered indulgences for those who gave alms to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. The aggressive marketing practices of Johann Tetzel in promoting this cause provoked Martin Luther to write his 95 Theses, protesting against what he saw as the purchase and sale of salvation. In Theses 28, Luther objected to a saying attributed to Tetzel, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Okay? So what you have is, you have this guy, I don't know if you've seen the movie uh, Luther, the recent edition of the movie Luther. Okay? Um, it's, it's a fairly accurate portrayal of what was going on with uh, Mr. Tetzel. Okay? But the idea is, he was going around and he had this slogan he would say. As soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So the idea was you put money in the can in order to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica, right? And what we're going to do is we're going to release your relatives who are now suffering in purgatory from their suffering. And they will be allowed to enter heaven through your money. Okay? On top of that, you have to consider the people whom from whom this money was being taken, or should we say extorted by way of deceit. Because number one, that's not true, Mr. Tetzel. Nobody's money is going to buy anybody some kind of a lesser sentence in a place that doesn't even exist. Are you with me? And so think about the concept of what's happening here, right? I say it's reprehensible. Here we have the church selling forgiveness to common people in order to raise funds to build an earthly temple of astounding cost and grandeur for the great pontiff to inhabit. I will appeal to your conscience. Is something wrong with this picture? Here's what Peter has to say. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. You understand? Not in your money. or not in your good service to the church. Your faith and your hope are in Christ, the unblemished Lamb that was sacrificed from the foundation of the world. Are you with me? We could go on for some time discussing the many ways in which the Roman church has and is denying the sufficiency of the person and work of Christ to save us from sins and bring us to God. I wanted to say this. There is this error going around, I hear it frequently, and that is that the Roman church has actually changed her teachings on these issues of the papacy, of the Eucharist. 
of purgatory, of indulgences. Okay? I want to tell you that is false. It is not true. You go to Rome and you will see these things alive and well. Okay? And, and you know what? That's a reality. You know? You don't have to take my word for it. It's a reality. You can go there and see it with your own eyes. You don't even have to go there. You can, there's plenty of resources available to show you that the Roman church hasn't changed one iota. Okay, they, they, they may incorporate Bible study and let people read the Bible in their own language now, but family, that doesn't change any of these fundamental teachings of the church, which, by the way, the church has pronounced these teachings and they're infallible. You understand that the church's doctrine is of higher authority than the Scripture itself in Roman teaching. And let me tell you, that most basic fundamental of all hasn't changed one bit. Are you with me? And so I'm telling you that essentially and fundamentally, the Roman church has not changed from these essential matters. Okay? Yes, there have been some changes in the surface of what it looks like. It's even, if you will, looks a little bit more like Protestant evangelical Christianity than it did, say, a hundred years ago. Okay? But the essential meat of what they are teaching hasn't changed one iota. It can't change. It cannot change. It's been pronounced by infallible popes and an infallible church. Okay? The Roman church would have to go through an, a, a massive uh, a denial of things she has taught in the past in order to reform what she's teaching in the future on the essential matters. Okay? And uh, I'm telling you, she has not changed. There are many more fundamental denials of Christ's work in such doctrines as penance, the veneration of Mary and the saints, and prayers being offered to them, the doctrine of the confessional and uh, priestly absolution, and then also the idea of relics. I'm not sure if you're aware of relics, the whole idea of relics. Uh, here's another way that people can actually be absolved of temporal punishment for sins. It's simply by visiting a relic. So you can visit a specific relic of the church and you can ob obtain, obtain partial indulgence based on whatever the thing is. Like, for instance, that the uh, uh, R.C. Sproul was telling us on the tape about the um, indulgence that's offered to those who go to the Lateran Church and ascend the scales, the ladder of the Lateran Church, right? And so if you get on each step and you say so many Hail Marys and, and, and certain prayers... You get to the top of the steps and apparently you've obtained a plenary indulgence. And um, uh, so it's this relic, which is the, the, the stairs. These stairs at the Lateran Church in Rome, if you will, uh, are have claimed to have been brought back from Jerusalem and were the very steps on which Pilate was standing where Jesus was condemned. And uh, so they are, it's a relic. And that relic is in Rome at one of the churches. He built the whole church around it. And um, the idea is you go in there, you get on the steps, and you say your prayers, and you do your thing, and when you get to the top, you gain a certain kind of an indulgence. Okay? And family, I've been there. I've seen it with my own two eyes. Okay? And let me tell you, it's, a, it's as alive today, right now, as it was in the 16th century when Martin Luther was there. Okay? And when he got upset about the whole thing. Right? And, of course, it manifests itself in many different ways. The one other thing I wanted to mention was their doctrine of baptism. Okay? Um, Anthony brought this up for me. Anthony No brought this up last week. 
he was talking about baptism and the importance of that. And, uh, and I, I think it's, it's important to understand, you know, all of these doctrines that they have all work together in this big system. Okay? And, and all of those things culminated over time. Okay, we don't, we don't necessarily just pick out one error and say, see, see that error? You know, here's the thing. It's, it's what that thing has morphed into over time that these guys are protesting, okay? Because over time, it became a big snowball. And so it, pretty soon, they're denying almost every essential there is, okay? And if not denying it, they're undermining it, okay? And so it's important for us to be able to have the discernment to see those things. So, these and many more were the occasion of the protest. This is what the Protestants have taken issue with Roman Church over, and it is no small matter. During the time of the Reformation, all these things had culminated in a very grievous and unbiblical system of religion, which sparked a rebellion against the Roman Church, from which the gospel has gone out as clearly and brightly as the noonday sun. This is because the central issues of the gospel were at stake in the heart of the Reformation controversy. This is what I'm saying. This, all of this stuff that the church became to be is what actually caused okay, the Reformation, which in my mind was, was something that caused the gospel to be absolutely clarified, written down, and heralded from that day forward okay, by the true church just as it was in times past by the true church. Okay? But it's all this controversy that caused those things to be clarified. You know, it's what we call historical theology. In the study of historical theology, what, what you're studying is the development of theological doctrine over time. Okay? And now, in our day and age, we have theological doctrine clarified to a degree that the early church had had no idea of. Okay? And how did that happen? It happened through all the controversy and all the arguments and all the polemics and all the problems and all the reformations and all of that that went on for years and years and years and years and years. And as the church councils met and all the prophets and the wise men got together, they got together and clarified what is historic Christian doctrine. And it's still in the process. We still do not have a completely clarified system of theology. There are things that are still going through a major refinement, but not the essentials. The essentials have all been clarified. Yes, sir. I'm sorry. <laughs> Anthony's last name is Karabahar. <laughs> Uh, massacred that. <clears throat> okay. So then, you see, most of these issues center around the issue of justification. What is it that justifies us in the sight of God, and how is that justification applied to our life? In other words, how is a person saved from sins and reconciled to God? These matters are summed up biblically in the understanding of the doctrine of justification. So what is it that the reformers were saying in response to these matters? Okay, so I know that's cut off of your page there, and you're wondering, what in the world am I reading? That's just one of those tricks. It's one of those tricks I'm playing. You better keep an eye on me. Okay. <clears> okay. <throat> 
So then, the pillars of Reformation teaching. Okay, here's here's the deal. What is it that the reformers were saying in their protest? Okay, what what was the the heart of the protest? And furthermore, if you consider yourself a Protestant, you may or you may not. Okay, you may consider that important. You may not think it's important at all. But if you consider yourself a Protestant, question is, what are you protesting? Well, if you're protesting what the Protestant reformers were protesting, here is what what they were saying. The, the five solas. As the protest took shape in the 16th century, the issues became more and more clearly defined. When the reformers sought to clarify the main tenets of the protest, they developed a few phrases or slogans to point to the main theological issues that were at stake. These became known as the five solas. The Latin word sola is translated only or alone in English. The five solas articulated five fundamental beliefs of the Protestant Reformation in contrast to those of the Roman Church to which they were protesting. These five summarized what they saw as the fundamental principles of Christian life and faith. Okay? I want to repeat that. These five summarized what they saw as the fundamental principles of Christian life and faith. So they were. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Scripture only is the final rule of Christian life, faith, and practice. It is clear, sufficient, and self-interpreting. Sola Christus, Christ alone. Christ is the only mediator between God and man. Christ's person and work alone are sufficient to save. Sola Gratia, grace alone. God's grace only is the origin of salvation. All elements of salvation are an unmerited gift from God. Sola fide, faith alone. The only means of justification is faith, apart from the works of the law. Faith alone appropriates salvation. Soli Deo Gloria, God's glory alone. To God only belongs the glory for salvation, This alone is to be our motivation for life and worship. Not only did these five fundamental principles summarize the Reformation protest, but they also clearly define the fundamental principles of salvation and Christian faith. Are you with me? So this is the main thing. This is the main thing. This is what Christians believe. Okay? These clearly summarize the gospel message and point to the heart of the issues at stake in the gospel. This happened because the Roman church had, over a long period of time, moved away from the gospel, and the person and the work of Christ was no longer central to the life and practice of the church. This resulted in the pompous display of man-made religion, with all of its rites and traditions, which religion the reformers were formally protesting. The result theologically was a clarification of the main tenets of the Christian faith and a renewed focus on the heart of the gospel message, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. What I'm saying is, the result of the Protestant Reformation was this. Theologically, it was a clarification of the main tenets of the Christian faith and a renewed focus on the heart of the gospel message, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You with me? 
So it's clarifying what the essential tenets of Christianity are, and it's saying those are the things we need to focus on. Okay? We don't want to be looking through the forest and not see any of the trees. Are you with me? We want to know what the main thing is. And this is the problem in aberrant forms of uh, Protestant Christianity today. Okay? They don't know what the essential tenets of the Christian faith are. They don't have a focus on the essentials of the gospel and of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. They're often all other kinds of religious ideas. Many of them are filling their pockets full of money off the backs of poor people because of the message that they're preaching. Right? It's a common theme among false teachers, by the way. Right? It's all about the power or it's all about the money. Right? And it's very much like the system of the world. Is it not? Okay. Well, the only truly Protestants, right, are the ones who are actually protesting the Catholic Church. And, and so your conviction of saying, I'm not a Protestant, I'm a Christian, is a holy conviction. I, I applaud that. And not only that, I think to enthrone the Reformers or to enthrone the banners they were carrying is an error of great proportion. Well, all the you got it. You got the heart and the core of what I am saying. And you just articulated it very well. So, uh, and I do believe that the spirit that is alive in the Roman church is pharisaical. It's, it's in its nature. It is exactly what man-made religion is. And, of course, during the time of Christ, that's what Judaism had become. Not only that, the most uh, uh, serious and profound uh, warnings uh, that came out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ were directed toward those men and that system. And, uh, and, and I believe that the Protestant Reformation simply clarified that at a time in church history when those things badly need to be clarified. Furthermore, Something that we're, we're learning from the Protestant Reformation is in the development of theological principles, those doctrines were never truly clarified to the degree that they were in the Reformation. And it's, so, if you will, you can look back at many other events in church history. For instance, the Council of Nicaea, right? Or, or anywhere else where, where they had church councils that were called to refute specific kinds of heresies, and there they would pronounce the canons that would give us clarification of specific doctrines, okay? And uh, the first one I think of is recorded in Scripture in the book of Acts, right? In chapter 15, where Paul comes down to the church of Jerusalem and there's a big uproar with the Judaizers and there's this false doctrine of, Ju- of the Judaizers being taught in the Gentile churches. And Paul comes to the church and he gathers the elders and he says, what is your ruling on this? And they give the ruling on that. And if you will, that's happened again and again and again and again and again throughout the course of church history, okay? And each time that happens, we gain a clearer view at the arguments that are being held. The thing about the Protestant Reformation is, is that the the arguments and the controversy there centered around the very essentials of the Christian faith. It's centered around the very essential tenets of the gospel itself and the doctrine of salvation and the person and the work of Christ which, if you will, is the most important thing that we teach as Christians. If you don't affirm the doctrines of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, you're not a Christian. These are essential matters, and so that's what the Reformation did. 
it clarified those things for us by bringing them to a heated controversy and a heated argument. And blood was spilt over those things. And because of it, the blood of the martyrs is preaching the gospel to us. Are you with me? Okay. So then. This resulted... I'm sorry. Okay. Sola Scriptura. The scripture alone is the final rule of Christian life, faith, and practice. It is clear in self-interpreting. The issue here, of course, was in contrast to the Roman teaching that the church, the tradition, and the fathers was the final authority of faith and practice. More than this, they taught that only the church and the priesthood could rightly interpret the scripture because it was inaccessible to the common man. Sola Scriptura clearly meant that not only was the scripture, not the church, the final rule of faith and practice, but that it could be understood by the common man, not only a special priesthood, because it was clear, perspicuous, and understandable because the Holy Spirit could interpret the meaning to each believer. Okay, so the idea was that church had held that the church was the final authority of faith and practice. Okay, well the reformers were saying, no, 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 it's the Bible. The Bible is the, is the uh, a final authority for faith and practice. And not only that, we don't need anybody to specially interpret it for us, but that the scripture itself teaches that every believer has an anointing from the Holy Spirit and knows and understands the truth of God's word because the Holy Spirit teaches each believer. That's exactly what the scripture says. It says you don't need any man to teach you, but all of you have an anointing from God and you all know the truth. Right? So that's because in regeneration, this is what God does. He comes to live in us by His Spirit. And, and the Spirit of truth is in us. And as Pastor Tim has been teaching us in the book of John, the, the Spirit guides us and leads us into all truth. That's one of His ministries. Amen? And so Sola Scriptura was saying this. It was not only was it saying the Scripture is the final authority, but you have the ability to interpret and understand it in and of yourselves because the Spirit of God lives in you. Okay? And, and that's why it was so important. And let me tell you, that needed to be clarified. Right? Not only that, the book needed to be translated into the common language so the people could read it. Okay? And this was all going on around that time. God was bringing these things to pass. Not only this, but Sola Scriptura also meant that the Bible was a complete revelation of God in its closed canon and that it was sufficient to address all matters in Christian life and to explain to us what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Okay, you understand what I mean by closed canon? Okay, what that means is the books of the Bible that we have are the revelation of God, nothing more and nothing less. Okay, and so there's big controversy about that as well because, of course, during that time, the Roman church had extra books in the Bible. Still do today, right? Books that are not inspired and are not part of the canon. And so there's a lot more to Sola Scriptura than just what meets the eye here. Are you with me? But the main issues that were at stake were this. The Bible is the authority, not the church. It is self-interpreting so that every individual believer has the ability to rightly understand it by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And furthermore, the scripture is sufficient and complete for all matters of faith and practice. You have everything you need, right? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, right? His divine uh, power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him. Amen? 
So then, how many of you are familiar with the catechism? One of the things that came out of the Reformation that I really uh, enjoy is, is the catechism, right? And there's many catechisms. I, when I say the catechism, of course, I'm referring to the Westminster, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, right? And so uh, we all know the first question in the catechism, right? right? What is the chief end of man? And the answer? Okay, glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Good class. What is question number two? Nope, nope. Okay, ready? Here, I'm going to read it to you. What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? Answer? The Word of God, which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. Amen? How about question number three? I knew I'd stump you on those. Question number three. What do the Scriptures principally teach? Answer. The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Okay? And so, if you will, let's talk about Christian faith, right? What's it all about? Well, glorifying and enjoying God, right? Well, how do we know how to do that? Well, you read the Bible, right? And the Bible is sufficient. I mean, family, this is, this is foundational, right? Without the Bible, we're lost, Right? Without the, without the Bible, we have nothing. Are you with me? The Bible is everything. The Word of God is everything. Okay? Everything that we need for life and for godliness. For salvation. Everything we need to know, whatever duties God requires of us. Amen? Okay, then. Oh, so yeah, I was going to tell you. You can, you can do the catechism. I do, I'm doing the catechism right now with my family every Tuesday night. Some people don't like the Westminster because question number 95 mentions the baptism of infants. Okay? So I have a modified version of the Westminster done by Spurgeon which corrects those few little things. Right? But uh, here's a fabulous book right here for the dad as he's leading the family through. Right? The Shorter Catechism Explained from Scripture by Thomas... uh, Vincent. He is a Puritan pastor. Uh, 17th century Puritan pastor. Okay, But the idea is this thing expounds on each one of the catechisms and gives scripture references and explanations for each of the questions. Okay, I'm sorry? Thomas Vincent. Yeah. This is one of those Puritan paperbacks. Okay, But the idea is, you know, do we even know what the essentials of Christian faith are? How about your family? Does your family know what the essentials of the Christian faith are? And how are you going to learn that? You know, on what track are you educating them and teaching them? Okay? This is a great tool. Okay? So, that's why I mention it. Um, We're going to have to knock off right there. And we'll go through the rest of these. Let's pray. God, our Father, we... We thank you for those faithful men which have contended for the faith down through the ages, starting with our blessed Lord Jesus and his preaching the gospel to us and how hostile 
the world was to his gospel. And his blood had to be shed because of that hostility. Even the same blood of the prophets that went before him, all the way back to the prophet Abel. We thank you for these faithful men. We thank you for the apostles who clarified so clearly for us the truth of the gospel. We thank you for all the prophets and the wise men that you have sent to us down through the ages, God, who have spoken clearly and explained clearly from your word the truth to us. And, Father, we now ask that you would give us the hearing ear and the seeing eye, that, God, you would, by the Holy Spirit, give us understanding. And, Father, I pray as we look through these essentials of the Christian faith that they would become deeply rooted in our minds so that we understand and know the main thing and that, God, we keep the main thing the main thing. And, Father, I pray that all of this would culminate in a great devotion and love to you so that, God, we would obey even the greatest of all commandments to love you with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. May we be people who are characterized by a great love and devotion to you, God. We honor and we praise you because of Jesus' holy cross. Amen.